0: All right, everyone, I hope you're all doing well. Uh, we're jumping back into our series in 1 Corinthians. And just by way of introduction, as we start this passage, quarantine had just happened uh, the week that I was supposed to preach this message. And so um, so we're back in 1 Corinthians after half a year. Um, as you're, if you're there, um, I invite you to read with me uh, in chapter 12, verse 31. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever baked a cake? Many, many years ago, before Megan and I got married, uh, there was this really popular cooking competition show that Megan's parents were really into called The Great British Bake Off. And at the start of the quarantine, uh, it it showed up on Netflix again, again, and um, Megan and I started watching it. Um, And if you don't know what The Great British Bake Off is, it is a cooking competition show where contestants have to showcase their pastry cooking abilities. It's a really fun and wholesome show. Um, The contestants are given a certain amount of time to replicate a a pastry or a cake, and then they're judged for how close the replica is to the original. But what made the show interesting was that they were given an incomplete recipe. For example, for one of the challenges, the, the contestants were asked to replicate a tiramisu cake. To make the sponge cake, for the tiramisu, the recipe called for like four eggs, half a cup of flour, half a cup of sugar, some butter. But what made it an incomplete recipe was that the recipe didn't tell you how long you were supposed to leave it in the oven for or how hot the, the oven needed to be. And so all the contestants had to figure out the oven temperature and the baking time based off of their own experience. Without knowing how hot the oven needed to be or how long the cake needed to be in the oven, some cakes turned out burnt, some turned out really flat and not puffy at all, and, and for others, it turned out really great. But the, the reason why the competitions were so hard was because contestants are given only one hour And if they messed up the first batch, they wasted half of their time and had to start over and remake a second batch. If you neglect the time and temperature, it ruins the pastry. And what the challenge demo demonstrated was that it's not enough that you have the right ingredients or the right experience or the right talent. If you don't have something so simple as the right temperature or even the right cooking time. If you just mess up in one crucial area, even if you have everything else right, you ruin the whole thing. If you get one thing wrong, it ruins the entire thing. You know, the thing about baking a cake is that if there are actually a lot of parallels with what it means to be a Christian. You see, by most standards, if you just looked at the Corinthian church from the outside, just by way of context, what you would see was a church that had skilled pastors and gifted teachers. There was a church that had growing ministries, it was a church that looked a lot like Lighthouse with all the ingredients of a healthy, biblical, and even successful church. It was a church that was gifted with incredible abilities and skills, a church that looked good on the outside. But for the past 12 chapters, the Apostle Paul has been slowly peeling back the complex layers of this gifted church. And what did we find beneath the veneer of the Corinthians' success and giftedness? Well, if you remember, one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in the first place was because of the divisions occurring in the Christian community. The Corinthians were divided over their favorite preachers, They were divided over sexual immorality, they were divided over Christian freedoms, and in the most recent chapter, in chapter 12, they were divided over spiritual gifts. Back in chapter 1, the Greek word that Paul uses to describe the divisions occurring in the church is this word called schismata. It's where we get the, the word schism from. But even the English word schism doesn't really convey the same force because what he is saying is that these divisions were tearing the church apart, like tearing apart, tearing, tearing off, and ripping apart the limbs of a body. It didn't matter how gifted the church was because they were destroying each other with their gifts and abilities. It didn't matter how smart or knowledgeable they were if there was no church. And so it's here in the 13th chapter of first Corinthians in light of the previous chapters. Now that the apostle Paul exposes the source of all of their divisions. It was that the Corinthians had overlooked the most crucial element and ingredient that unites them all together, love. And in overlooking love, they overlooked Jesus and the community of God. This is one of the great ironies of a successful and growing church, because even though the Corinthian church was probably the most brilliant church among the early churches, it was also the early church's most troubled church. Out of all the early churches, the Corinthian church was probably the most gifted but also happen to experience the most jealousy, the most arrogance, and the most divisions. In fact, as we continue on in this chapter, we'll see that almost every word in this chapter has been chosen with the Corinthians in mind. What we see in the Corinthian church is that the more successful a church is, the more successful a youth group is, the more successful you are, the more likely you are to overlook the most basic and fundamental ingredient of what makes us truly and vibrantly Christian. Just like baking a cake, you can know and have all the right ingredients of what it means to be a Christian. You can know truths about God, Scripture, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. You can belong and go to the right church. You can be discipled and receive counseling from all the right people. You can come from the right family, even. You can know the right thing to say in small groups. You can know the right thing to say or even the right thing to do in general. You can remember all the, the Friday night messages and keep all of your Friday night notes, which I'm sure all of you do. You can know right and wrong. You can be incredibly endowed with talent and ability. And from all outward appearances, you can give off the appearance that you are a successful Christian. But just like a cake, if you lack one crucial element, then not even all of the right and good things that you do will be enough. You can ruin and even undo all the good and right things you believe and all the good and right things that you do if you miss one crucial ingredient, which is love. This is what the Apostle Paul warns us of in this famous chapter on love. 1 Corinthians uh, 13 is one of the most beloved chapters in the Bible. taken out of context. It's one of the most beautiful treatments ever ever penned. But taken in context now with the rest of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13 might actually be the most terrifying chapters in Scripture. Because without love, we are nothing. Without love for one another, everything that we do is rendered ineffective. God's evaluation is that we are nothing, no matter what family we belong to, no matter how many friends that we have in youth group, no matter how popular we are, no matter how much we know, no matter how long we've been coming to youth group, no matter all the right things that you do, no matter how gifted you are, all of that will be ineffective and meaningless without love. And so the key idea is that a people centered on Messiah are a people who prioritize love. Two reasons why love must be our priority. The first is that without love, we are nothing. Let's take a look back at the end of verse 31 of chapter 12. Paul says, And I will show you a still more excellent way. Now our passage comes off of the heels of uh, our, our passage from half a year ago, where the Apostle Paul encourages us to see the church as his body, with different and distinct body parts that serve different functions. And in the beginning of verse 31, the Apostle Paul calls us to desire the higher gifts. And the Apostle Paul repeats this same phrase in, in chapter 14, verse 1, when he says to desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, why does Paul make this repetition? Why does he break off at the end of, at the beginning of verse 31 and start it up again at chapter 14, verse 1? It was because the Apostle Paul wants us to see something. Chapter 12 and chapter 14 are two chapters on spiritual gifts. And chapter 13 is on love. Now, what's the point? Why do chapters 12 and 14 parallel while chapter 13 doesn't? And I've mentioned this term before in a a previous message, but when two chapters parallel, it's called an inclusio. Think of an an inclusio like your favorite sandwich or burger. A sandwich contains two pieces of bread that sandwiches the stuff inside. And so if chapters 12 and 14 are the two pieces of bread, what is chapter 13? Well, by placing chapter 13 in the center between chapters 12 and 14, Paul is trying to show us that love determines how we use the gifts that Paul talks about in chapters 12 and 14. In other words, by placing love in the center, the Apostle Paul is showing that love isn't only at the center of the chapter, but love is the center and foundation of all that we do. As if to say that the cause of the divisions and conflicts that were occurring in the church weren't as a result of the other person or how difficult they are being, but because of their lack of love and concern for the other person. And so whatever you think is important in your life right now, whether it's your grades, your your classes, your extracurriculars, your time, your preferences, your your friends, your relationships, your gifts, your abilities, your talents, whatever it is, by the more excellent way, the Apostle Paul is saying that our love for one another must sit as the undergirding motive in all that you do, especially during a time that we live in right now. What the Apostle Paul is hinting at is that there is something more important than gifts, talents, or abilities. It's love. Why? We'll take a look at the, first, at the next verse. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. Now the, gifts of tongue, the gift of tongues that the Apostle Paul talks about simply refers to being able to speak foreign human languages that they did not learn from a semester or two of Spanish or Japanese. In other words, the the gift of tongues was a miraculous ability to speak a language that was completely untaught. And much, much ink has been spilt over what Paul meant by the tongues of angels. So I'll just give you the TLDR. The tongues of angels were really just mere hyperbole, I think. There's no angelic language because angels don't normally speak. Angels don't have physical bodies. Like God, they are immaterial and spirit. The angels can take on human form, and when they do, they have only ever spoken in human languages that people understood. And so what is Paul saying here in this verse? Is that hypothetically speaking, even if I did speak with linguistic powers, earthly or even heavenly, apart from love, apart from a deep and genuine care and concern for the other person, I am just a loud and annoying noise, like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. But notice carefully what the Apostle Paul isn't saying the Apostle Paul isn't saying that the that the gift itself is a noisy gong. The speech, the truth, and the words themselves aren't the sound of a noisy gong. He says that he is a noisy gong. In other words, if what you say and how you say it, no matter how correct it is, no matter how truthful it is, no matter how funny it is, no matter how eloquent you are, no matter how good you are with your words, no matter how much the other person needs to hear it, if it is said without a deep concern, and compassion for the other person, love. And if it is said in an, an uncompassionate manner, in other words, if it is said without love, Paul says that you are a noisy gong. Now, this is what Paul doesn't mean by love. When we are talking with someone whom we disagree with, whether it's on fa or politics or theology, music, biology, whatever it is, love does not mean agreeing with them. Love does not mean affirmation. When the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians that we are to speak the truth In love, love obviously involves truth telling. In fact, the Apostle Paul, just a few verses later, will write that love rejoices with the truth. Love is not at odds with truth, it is opposed to evil. But that is not usually the problem for most of us. Paul's problem isn't that we love truth too little, but that we love truth. We love being right. We love our cause. We love our opinions. We love our thoughts. We love our viewpoint. We love talking. We love saying dumb stuff. We love the freedom to say whatever we want at the expense of the other person. But if you take a look back at verse 1 again, if Paul simply cared about what he said, he would have said that our speech is a noisy gong. But that's not what he says. He says that without love, he is. The point is that Paul isn't merely concerned about what we say, but why we say it. Paul isn't only concerned about the behavior of our words, but the motivation behind it. And by pointing the finger at us and not our words, Paul is asking us if we actually care about others when we speak or if we just care about ourselves. You see, people who are all about the truth without love really care about their cause, but we wonder if they really care about us. On the other hand, people who are all about love without the truth are pleasant and likable, but we wonder if they really like us or if they just like being liked. And the thing is that both are equally unloving. Why? It's because in both instances, what we care about isn't the other person, but really ourselves. And so let me ask you guys a question. How many of you today, whether at school, in your classes, in Zoom, or at home, or wherever, said something to someone because you actually cared about them? Or because you wanted them to think you were funny? Or because you wanted to manip- manipulate them? Or because you wanted to intimidate them? Or because you wanted them to like you? Or because you just wanted to express your unsolicited opinion? You know, one of the challenges of living in a digital age like ours is that we constantly feel the need to say and express whatever we want to say to give our opinion on just about everything, whether it's politics, our teachers, how we dress, um, or how others dress, how our parents parent to talking behind people's backs. We think that people need to hear what I really think. And I'm going to push that the green, the blue or green send button, whether they like it or not. And it's the reason why media thrives on hot takes. And whatever you say, if it is without consideration and compassion toward the other person, in fact, without love, this is what you will sound like to other people. Now, many of us know what a symbol is and how a symbol sounds like in the context of music, but have you ever considered how annoying a symbol sounds on its own? When, when people can tell that you're saying, what you're saying isn't motivated by care and compassion for them, this is what you sound like to other people. When you talk about politics without love, this is what you sound like. Whatever your thoughts are on the current state of our society, without love, this is what you sound like. Whatever your thoughts are on wearing face masks or social distancing or whatever, without love, this is what you will sound like. when you comment on something without love, when you critique someone or something without love, that is what you sound like. In fact, this is not only what you sound like, but this is what you are. This is what you have been reduced to. Nothing more than an annoying symbol. Now, if you've ever wondered why people don't really listen to you, could this be a possible reason? that no matter how convincing or eloquent or even logical you are or talented you are, without love, you become something as annoying as a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. You become something meaningless, unimportant, and ineffective. And if having no love means that we are nothing but a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal, then the opposite is also true. If without love, we are rendered ineffective ineffective and meaningless, then The opposite is true too. Love will actually guard us from being ineffective and annoying. Because if we have love, even if we disagree with others, at least they will still hear us. At least on our own end, we will not have severed their friendship or relationship. And so the practical question that the Apostle Paul wants us to consider and ask in every conversation, in every relationship, situation, whatever it is, whether it's with the classmate that you really don't want to talk to or your nagging parents, your friends, whoever it is, The question that he is asking us to consider is, does love undergird everything that you say? And we'll talk a bit more about what the shape and way of love looks like next week. But love means that even if we disagree with others, we hear them. Love means that even if others disagree with us, we care more about the individual than the issue itself. Love will mean that when we say something hurtful or dumb, we have the humility to confess and ask for the other person's forgiveness. Love means that if you have nothing constructive to say, then you shouldn't say it. Love will even mean that we don't humanize, but that I see the other person as a person, not something to conquer, not something to humiliate or manipulate, not something to destroy, not something to convince. But when our speech lacks and is not motivated by love, we not only become annoying and loud as a noisy gong, without love, we become nothing. Take a look at verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now this verse is surprising because if you think about it, prophetic powers, understanding all mysteries and having all knowledge, having faith to remove mountains is like the Christian's dream. This is the closest thing to to superpowers. And you know, as as a pastor and as youth leaders, wouldn't we love it if our high schoolers had prophetic powers? Like seriously, I don't even mean this facetiously. Wouldn't it be great if we had high school students who were so gifted that they were able to shake mountains, to have high school students understand all divine mysteries and all knowledge, to have students who are gifted enough to lead their own Bible studies in small groups, to have students who don't need to be told what to do or what they need to know because they already know it. I mean, how much easier your parents' job your youth leader's job, and my job would be if you possess these abilities, maybe even your job as, or maybe even your life as a, your Christian life as a high school student. Last Friday, I had asked, what does a healthy high school ministry look like? But tonight, I want to ask a more specific question. What does a healthy, vibrant Christian look like? What would you say? A healthy, vibrant Christian is blank. How would you fill in that blank? What would you say? You know, for some of you, you might say that a healthy, vibrant Christian is someone who grows in their knowledge of scripture. It's someone who really knows their Bible inside and out. Or maybe it's a Christian who knows how to do this X Christian thing or this Y Christian thing, or that they're gifted or have skills. Now, I do want to point out and mention that none of these things are wrong. All these are great things. But what the Apostle Paul wants to do is expose our implicit priorities for what truly defines true Christian growth and maturity. In fact, not even pastors are immune to this kind of implicit priority. You know, earlier this year, I was uh, when I was preparing for what would have been our Mexico mission trip earlier this summer, I was sharing with one of our pastors about how the trip would most likely have to fall on the same week as Mount Hermon, which is a summer youth camp that some of you attend. Now, just to clarify, just in case you were wondering, I didn't intentionally plan to make students choose between serving in Mexico or going to Mount Hermon. That was just the week that I was told would be the best. And so when I told one of our pastors about the scheduling conflict, he suggested I try to make sure that they don't conflict. And I agreed until he explained his reason for his suggestion. His reason wasn't so that we can have maximum attendance for both, but really that the more solid students who should serve in the mission trip wouldn't be able to, wouldn't be able to because they would be at Mount Hermon. Now, what do we mean by a quote-unquote solid Christian? Someone who has been at Lighthouse for a long time? someone who knows their theology, someone who comes from a good, God-fearing family. When we say that this church or that church is a solid church, what do, we, what do we mean by that? That it teaches good teaching or good theology or has a ton of Christian amenities? You see, the word solid is filled with so much ambiguity. What am I trying to get at? And what is the Apostle Paul really trying to get at? You see, we, th- we think that the barometer of true Christian maturity is ability and skill. But the barometer of true spiritual maturity for Paul is love. How would the Apostle Paul fill in the blank? A healthy, vibrant Christian, according to the Apostle Paul, is a Christian who is loving. You see, if you were to ask me who I'd take to Mexico, I'd rather take a kid who might not be as eloquent or as gifted or as charming, but will love care and serve their guts out over against some other kid who is eloquent, gifted or charming checks all of the boxes of some arbitrary standard of maturity but does not have love. You see gifts, abilities, skills are just the cherry on top of a Christian because if you were to remove them a Christian's core identity and center would still remain the same, still loving. In fact, this is what theologian Jonathan Edwards writes, he says, extraordinary gifts are nothing properly inherent in the man. And they are excellent things, but they are not properly excellencies in the nature of the subject any more than the garments which he wears. In other words, the garments aren't essential to who he is as a a human being. You know, there's a scene in Spider-Man Homecoming where Tony Stark disciplines Peter by taking his suit away. And as Tony threatens to take his suit away, this is what Peter says in reply. He says, please, Mr. Stark, this is all I have. I am nothing without this suit. And Tony Stark replies, if you are nothing without this suit, then you shouldn't have it. You see, gifts and abilities are like clothes. They're good to have. They keep you warm. But they don't add value to who you are. So that if these gifts and abilities were removed or replaced or even added, The core of who you are is not tied to nor dependent on these gifts and abilities. The Apostle Paul wants to guard us from the danger of equating spiritual gifting with spiritual maturity. One is not the same as the other. Rather, the Apostle Paul wants to change our value system by showing us that what is confirmatory of a Christian standing before God isn't how much they know, how much skill they have or what family they belong to, the definitive confirmation of a Christian standing before God is love. And so taken in this way, according to the Apostle Paul, love isn't just a nice thing that Christians do or have. Love is the essential marker that sets you apart as a child of God. In other words, love is the litmus litmus test of authentic Christianity. This is the gravity of what the Apostle Paul is saying. Paul doesn't say if you don't have love, then prophetic powers, understanding, and faith are nothing. Rather, more fundamentally, he says that if you don't have love, then you are nothing. And consider the spiritual arithmetic of Paul's equation. To have and possess everything yet without love means that you are a spiritual zero. In Paul's estimation, everything plus no love doesn't equal everything. Everything plus no love equals zero still. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that if you are not loving, then you are nothing, no matter what you have, no matter what kind of spiritual pedigree you come from. But it's a little extreme to say that we are nothing without love, isn't it? But notice why he says it. He says, even if you have faith to remove mountains, if you don't have love, you are nothing. Now, why would Paul say this? It's because in keeping with the Apostle James, faith without love isn't an inactive inact- an act- an faith, rather it is a dead faith. Your love for others is the definitive marker of whether you have truly experienced God's love for yourself or whether you have deceptively believed that you have. That is what is at stake. Our failure to love others, in other words, has a more fundamental pathology. Rooted in our failure to love others is our failure to love God. And so in your notes, I, I want you to write down this question who do I have the most difficulty loving in my life today? Which person comes to mind? Which, which friendship or relationship do I have difficulty pressing love into? And you can write my name down if you want, or maybe it's your parents or your siblings, or maybe the person in your small group. And the reason why I want you to do so is because of this quote that the author GP Lewis says, he says that it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting exasperating, depraved, or, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. And so I want you guys to be specific with who you're writing down. What, whoever it is, or even whatever the issue is, I want you to see this relationship, this friendship, this person as a window into your own relationship with God. You see, very rarely will we think of the relationship right in front of us and the way that we treat them as a measure of our relationship with God. But what the Apostle Paul wants us to see is that how we love others is intimately reflective of how we love God. You see, many of us come to youth group and do churchy things, fully convinced that we are loving God and loving others. But the real litmus test of how we love God is how we love others in our attitudes and actions throughout the week. I mean, just consider how the different forms of anti-love might look like with the specific person that I had had you guys write down just a second ago. How does anti-love how does lack of love manifest itself concretely in your life? You know, for some of you guys, it perhaps is very overt. Maybe your lack of love is expressed as anger or resentment or bitterness or a critical fault-finding spirit in the other person. Or for others of us, our lack of love is, is very discreet and subtle. For some of us, the, the opposite of love isn't hate, but really indifference and subtle passivity. Now, why do you think that is? Let's uncover that just a little bit. You see, many of us justify that it's because we've either sinned against, we've been either sinned against, or feel that we've been sinned against. And so our response to the other person who sinned against us is to punish them, to get back at them, or to withdraw and protect ourselves from further disappointment, pain, or harm. But notice what's happening in this dynamic. This isn't just a breakdown of a human relationship with another person, it's fundamentally a breakdown of a divine human relationship with God. What's happening beneath the surface of our anti-love is that there is a breakdown of trust and hope in the living God. We lash out in response to others, not because of the other person, but because of how our idolatries are threatened. For some of us, a form of anti-love is by moving against others by responding with hatred and malice, because we believe that the other person has threatened our sense of comfort or security or safety. For others of us, a form of anti-love is by moving away from others, by responding with shyness and isolation because we can't stand the possibility of the other person rejecting us or the thought of the other person disapproving us. And then for others of us, a form of anti-love is by moving toward others, by appeasing others, not because we like them, but because nothing feels as good as the affirmation of others. Do you, ha- do you notice what's happening in all these forms of anti-love? Whatever reigns in our hearts will also reign over our movement toward, movement against, or movement away from others. You see, whatever your heart gives allegiance to will end, we'll end up serving that master. So that so that when that when the master of approval or comfort or security is threatened, all manners of anti-love will manifest. If you look at all these forms of anti-love, they are all simply different forms of and manifestations of self-love, self-protection and self-preservation. These things become our functional God and become the driving force behind all manifestations of our anti-love. And so really the breakdown, like I mentioned, the breakdown of a friendship with a person is fundamentally rooted in the breakdown of a covenant friendship with the living God. A broken friendship with a person is a broken friendship with God himself. Now, as you consider and think about who this difficult person is, and as we consider love in very concrete ways for this person, you might be wondering, well, what about the call to love those who consistently and even dangerously violate their own responsibility to love? And I'll try to tackle that very challenging and troubling question in next Friday's message. But just so that you know that it's on my mind, my brief response is that our love and care for dif- difficult people doesn't exist by itself. In other words, our love and care for other people, especially those who, are, those who consistently violate our trust and our love, must also be informed by other virtues like wisdom or justice or even holiness. Does love always look like moving toward those who consistently violate your trust? A love that is informed by wisdom will lead us to consider that there are other alternative ways of loving someone while ensuring that you are safe and not taken advantage of. Love informed by wisdom will mean that sometimes in order to love this person, we must move away from them. Sometimes love requires moving away from the one you love so that you do not participate in evil. Or you may need to create distance in an abusive or toxic friendship or relationship. Love that is informed by justice and holiness will also look differently as well. Sometimes the the most just way to love someone may require that you move against someone that you love. A just and even holy response of love may require you to challenge the sinful responses and behaviors of another of another person as a way to help them, not harm them. Love may require that you actually do speak the truth in love, to say no, and to not stand by what they said or what they did. Just as anti-love can manifest itself in different ways, so also genuine love can manifest itself in different ways as well, as we consider the virtue of love alongside other virtues like wisdom, justice, and even hope. But as important as this question is, the Apostle, the Apostle Paul's point is that when given the opportunity, we, we will always justify why we didn't love this person or that person. That, that's just our natural bent. But the gospel of Jesus directs us a full 180 degrees from self-justification and self-preservation. You see, when Jesus realized that he was going to have to die for his people, when he realized that the, that the people he was going to save were going to murder him, Jesus did not run away, nor command a legion of his angels, nor people-pleased. Jesus did not erect a barrier to protect himself from his enemies. Rather, as God the Son, Jesus tore through time, space, and history, removing those barriers and moving toward his enemies in order to make us his friends. Why does all this matter? Again, it's because how we love others or fail to love others will demonstrate whether we have come to know this God who loved without limits. Our failure to love says more about us and the state of our own hearts than it does for the other person. And so without love, the first point is that without love, we are nothing. That brings us to our second and final point. Without love, we we gain nothing. Take a look finally at verse 3. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now what the Apostle Paul points out in our last verse is that it is possible to to do the right things for all the wrong reasons. And you know, I think some of us know people like this. You know, back when the youth ministry was still a lot smaller, there was a a youth staffer who had served in the youth ministry. And don't worry, he doesn't serve on youth staff anymore. But part of what made my job so difficult as the new youth pastor wasn't only the fact that the, the youth ministry was growing, but also the fact that this youth staffer would show up to youth group consistently every Friday, demonstrably showing that he did not want to be there. It was very obvious that he did not want to be there. Now, on the one hand, despite the fact that he made it clear that he did not want to be there, I was glad that he would still show up on time, attend our youth staff meetings, contribute and serve and lead small groups and stick around until youth group ended. I was thankful for that. But I knew, and everyone everyone else knew, that he clearly did not want to be there. It was honestly like walking on eggshells around him. But as much as I appreciated that he did what he needed to do as a leader, that he checked off all the right things he needed to do as a leader, there was a clear disconnect between his actions and his motivations. And you know, someone might say, well, at least he he went, right? And that's true, he did. But according to verse 3, does it even matter what he did? Does it even matter that he did show up in the first place? Did he gain anything by serving in a ministry that he didn't want to be a part of? And so let me ask you, how how would you assess this leader? Would you say that he was faithful or even loving? Why or why not? Do you think that the, the youth ministry and the students at the time that he served Were they honored and loved by his leadership and his presence, despite clearly not wanting to be there? What do you guys think? And this is what the Apostle Paul is trying to get at in this verse. In bringing up two of the most sacrificial things that a person could do, giving giving away all that you had and giving up your entire body, the Apostle Paul was pointing to the fact that it's completely possible for someone to do the right thing, honorable things for all the wrong reasons. You see, in the first point, To love as God loves means that we need to recognize and be on the lookout for anti-love. But in the second point, to love as God loves means that we need to recognize and be on the lookout for counterfeit love as well. Anti-love and counterfeit love are really two sides of the same coin. Counterfeit love is the most deceptive kind of anti-love because we can pretend that our outward actions are loving while masking our unloving motivations. And we can get away with it without ever changing. Just as we had seen earlier, you can serve your tail off in youth ministry as a counterfeit love for all the wrong reasons. You can serve and submit to your parents, not because you love them, but because you just want them to get off your back and to stop nagging you. You can show up to youth group diligently and still come, which is a great and a right thing. Not because you, but not because you actually care about the people here or because you want to grow and learn, but because you can appease your parents and get them off your back be nice to others, not because you actually care about being nice or you care about the other person, but because being nice has utilitarian value and people are more inclined to give you what you want when you're being nice. You see, it is possible to do the right things, to say the right things and even believe in all the right things for all the wrong reasons. It's possible possible to appear self-sacrificial while not actually being self-sacrificial at all. Why is this a danger? The danger is that we can do all the right things for others and even things for God while our hearts are far from people and from God. This was precisely the problem of the Pharisees and even the problem of the Israelites during the time of Isaiah. Just by way of example, if you found out that your friend's mom was at the hospital and you showed up to see your friend and their family and they thank you for coming. And in reply, you said, no problem. It's my duty to come to see you. Would they be more honored by your presence or less honored by your presence? Well, the, Paul, the Apostle Paul wants to show us is that the motives of the heart are critical to the quality of our love for God and others. Listen even to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6-7. to He says, Each one must give as he dec- decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a what? Loves a cheerful giver. Now, why does the Apostle Paul say that God loves a cheerful giver? It's because it's only the cheerful giver who can appropriately honor God. God is not pleased when people are acting generously, but don't do it gladly. Who people who, who will give, but will clench their fists as they give. I think we can understand this on a human level. We won't, we don't want someone to do something for us if they didn't want to do it in the first place, because that isn't love. That's just sheer ob- obligation. And it's super whack. But as we seek to love like God, what we see in God's love for us is that it is a self-initiated love rather than an obligatory love. When God loved us, it wasn't some feeling of niceness toward us. God tangibly and concretely stepped into creation to save us. That was a, a divine act of love. It wasn't a mere feeling of warm fuzzies. But why did He choose to? Why did God choose to act in this way? Well, simply because He wanted to. In Jesus, God didn't save humanity as, it was his, as if it was His duty to. Was God obligated to save humanity? By no means. God is the God without measure who is constrained by no one or anything. And so the fact that God did save us demonstrates that he did so only because he wanted to, not because he was obligated to. And so what is the application of, of even God's act of loving us and saving us? What is the application even of this verse? Well, the, fir- the first and perhaps most obvious is that this verse encourages us to step back in our relationships, friendships, the things that we do in the Christian life and even search our motivations for doing stuff. And it causes us to ask ourselves, why am I even doing this in the first place? Is it because I love God and this other person or is it because I'm just seeing this person as a further end of mine? Is it just to make myself look good? Like what are the reasons for why I do what I do in the Christian life? Secondly, the second application is That the desire to love God, and, according to this passage and verse, the desire to love God and people with our whole hearts must be relentlessly pursued. You see, the thing is that the desire to love others and to want to love others doesn't just magically appear. It has to be fought for. When we don't feel like doing something that we ought to do, the answer isn't to just do it. That is how hypocrites are created. The authenticity of our love should be called into question when we do all the right things but don't do do it for the right reasons. I mean, that's what the Apostle Paul is really trying to say. And what this tells us is that love is certainly not less than an action, but more than an action. And at the same time, while love is certainly more than feelings, love is not less than feelings, too. Does this mean that we shouldn't do something if we don't feel like doing it? Well, of course not. But that's why it must be called into question why we must dig deeper into the motives of our hearts. Why don't we feel like doing it? From where does this lack of desire come from? And so to relentlessly pursue the desire to love God and others requires that we wrestle with why our hearts are cold toward God and others. It requires that we regularly confess the coldness and duplicity of our own hearts. It requires a continual reflection upon the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. Because the reality is that we can't begin to approach maturity in love unless we approach maturity in grasping something of the dimensions of God's love for us. You see, if your comprehension and even apprehension of God's love is narrow and constrained, then why should you expect for your application of love for others to magically expand when your vision of God's love is so constrained? In fact, perhaps one of the reasons why our love for others seems to run dry, why it seems stagnant, why it seems cold, why it seems like a duty to love others is because we haven't been drinking deeply from the infinite well of God's love. Perhaps in the continual call to love others, we've forgotten about the continual pursuit of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Perhaps we've become imbalanced by overemphasizing the imperative at the expense of the indicative. Perhaps we've been mustering up love on our own strength and on our own power. Perhaps that's why we feel guilty when we fail to love well, and why we feel self-righteous when we seem to love well. Sometimes if we happen to be in a fairly easy season of relationships in our our lives, we can easily forget that the capacity for for love is not self-generated. It's easy to forget that the capacity to love others is not a natural, safe, self-capability. And it's often in the face of difficult relationships that we actually come to realize that that loving others is not natural, but really supernatural. It is in the midst of hard conversations and difficult people that we come to realize how hard it actually is to love others. Hard relationships remind us that love is a spirit-generated virtue. So on the one hand, love must be something that we actively cultivate. Yes, we we must work hard uh, to do it. Love is one of the most worthwhile enterprises of the Christian life, but it doesn't make it any easier. And so we work hard at loving. But on the other hand, too, we must never forget that it is a gift from God. As much as we are called to act in love, we recognize, too, that love is a fruit of the Spirit, that it doesn't come from ourselves. It can't be generated from ourselves, at least genuine love. I mean, think about the person that I had you guys write down. Are you asking God for this spirit generated virtue to love this person, to move into their lives, to seek reconciliation, to resolve conflicts, or have you sim- simply given up and written them off as someone who is too far beyond the grace of God and the love of God. Now, let me wrap this up. So for some of you, you guys have been faithfully giving and giving and giving. And for, for many of you guys, love hasn't been a a, dr- a drudgery, but really I like delight. But the fact that you keep reaching out, you keep pursuing, and you keep forgiving, and the impact of your love for others is met by continual rejection, apathy, or even lack of rec- recognition. And that discourages you. I think for many of us, I think it's safe to say that the experience of having love thrown back in our faces is pretty universal. But this is precisely the kind of rec- rejection that God experiences constantly from us, his people. And if you think about it, if you think, of, if you think about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the incarnation is the is the climax of a love story gone sour. God through the ages, down through the ages, has loved us perfectly, pursued us passionately, provided for us in concrete, intangible ways. God gave, gave, and gave, and he wanted to. And yet his gracious and continual giving was met by our ungrateful and continual opposition. But rather than rejecting his people once and for all, when he could have, God continued, he wanted to, And so he continued to move toward his people. And God's movement toward his people ultimately culminated in the fullness of time at the great apex and climax of human history, when he actually clothed himself in human flesh, taking on the skin and bones of his enemies, so that in living, in dying, and in rising again for his enemies, he would make them his friends. It is precisely because we follow the God who loved us in the face of our rejection that we actually have the power and even capacity to love others in the face of opposition, not just because we have to, but because we want to? Do you realize that when you respond with gentleness to a harsh word, when you patiently endure what seems to be unreasonable expectations from your parents or even your friends because you believe that it is loving and the wisest thing to do, when you persist in loving difficult people, do you realize that you are a sermon in shoes to the watching world? You see, in the ordinary moments of your love for others, on the small stage of your life, you are really living out the great cosmic reality of God moving toward His people in love. A kind word, holding your tongue, your gracious intolerance of sin, all of those things from the more extraordinary or the more ordinary declare that this is the God who has loved me. The God who has loved me and given Himself up for me. This is the, this is the love of God's Spirit poured out on His people. And so what we actually see in the divine love of God is that His love transforms His people to be a loving people. To be able to love like God is a reality of cosmic proportion playing out in everyday life. The invisible God takes on visible shape in the, li- in the love and life of Christians who sacrifice for each other in the wider world. Does that give you hope in loving others well today? As we align ourselves with the God who is love, as we love as God loves, doesn't that infuse our attempts to love with hope and perseverance? Why? It's because what we've seen in the love of God, in His conquering our own rebellious hearts, is that God's love cannot be thwarted. God's love has conquered our hearts, and when we love others, we are aligning ourselves with a love that cannot fail. It will not return void. Your love for others will not be meaningless in the grand scale of God's love for us. Let's pray together. And Father, we do pray and ask that you would help us uh, upon deeper reflection upon your great love for us, upon deeper reflection of, of how we have opposed you and yet you still chose to and wanted to love us by even coming in, in the Son as, 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 as Jesus Christ to die for us. We do thank you. We do ask that that divine love and that divine shape of love would, would enable us and empower us to love boldly to love humbly, to love sacrificially, to love wisely. And in doing so, reflect your great love for us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.